Section One of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Four, edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Visigoths pillage Rome. A.D. 410 by Edward Gibbon, Part 1 Of the two great historical divisions of the Gothic race, the Visigoths, or West Goths, were admitted into the Roman Empire in A.D. 376, when they sought protection from the pursuing Huns, and were transported across the Danube to the Moesian shore. The story of their gradual progress in civilization and growth in military power which at last enabled them to descend with overwhelming force upon Rome itself, forms one of the romances of history. From their first reception into Lower Moesia, the Visigoths were subjected to the most contemptuous and oppressive treatment by the Romans who had admitted them into their domains. At last, the outraged colonists were provoked to revolt, and a stubborn war ensued, which was ended at Adrianople, August 9, A.D. 378, with the defeat of the Emperor Valens and the destruction of his army, two-thirds of his soldiers perishing with Valens himself, whose body was never found. In 382 a treaty was made, which restored peace to the Eastern Empire, the Visigoths nominally owning the sovereignty of Rome, but living in virtual independence. They continued to increase in numbers and in power, and in A.D. 395, under Alaric, their king, they invaded Greece, but were compelled by Stilicho in 397 to retire into Epirus. Stilicho was the commander-in-chief of the Roman army and the guardian of the young emperor Honorius. Alaric soon afterward became commander-in-chief of the Roman forces in eastern Illyricum and held that office for four years. During that time he remained quiet, arming and drilling his followers and waiting for the opportunity to make a bold stroke for a wider and more secure dominion. In the autumn of A.D. 400, while Stilicho was campaigning in Gaul, Alaric made his first invasion of Italy, and for more than a year he ranged at will over the northern part of the peninsula. Rome was made ready for defense, and Honorius, the weak emperor of the Western Empire, prepared for flight into Gaul. But on March 19th of the year 402, Stilicho surprised the camp of Alaric near Palentia, while most of his followers were at worship, and after a desperate battle they were beaten. Alaric made a safe retreat, and soon afterward crossed the Po, intending to march against Rome, but desertions from his ranks caused him to abandon that purpose. In 403 he was overtaken, and again defeated by Stilicho at Verona, Alaric himself barely escaping capture. Stilicho, however, permitted him, some historians say bribed him, to withdraw to Illyricum, and he was made prefect of western Illyricum by Honorius. Such is the prelude, followed in history by the amazing exploits of Alaric's second invasion of Italy. His troops having revolted at Pavia, Stilicho fled to Ravenna, where the ungrateful emperor had him put to death August 23, 408. In October of that year, Alaric crossed the Alps, advancing without resistance until he reached Ravenna. After threatening Ravenna, he marched upon Rome and began the preparations that ended in the sack of the city. The incapacity of a weak and distracted government may often assume the appearance and produce the effects of a treasonable correspondence with the public enemy. 
if alaric himself had been introduced into the council of ravenna he would probably have advised the same measures which were actually pursued by the ministers of honorius the king of the goths would have conspired perhaps with some reluctance to destroy the formidable adversary by whose arms in italy as well as in greece he had been twice overthrown their active and interested hatred laboriously accomplished the disgrace and ruin of the great stilicho the valor of sarus his fame in arms and his personal or hereditary influence over the confederate barbarians could recommend him only to the friends of their country who despised or detested the worthless characters of Turpilio, Veranus, and Vigilantius. By the pressing instances of the new favorites, these generals, unworthy as they had shown themselves of the names of soldiers, were promoted to the command of the cavalry, of the infantry, and of the domestic troops. The Gothic prince would have subscribed with pleasure the edict which the fanaticism of Olympius dictated to the simple and devout emperor honorius excluded all persons who were adverse to the catholic church from holding any office in the state obstinately rejected the service of all those who dissented from his religion and rashly disqualified many of his bravest and most skilful officers who adhered to the pagan worship or who had imbibed the opinions of arianism these measures so advantageous to an enemy alaric would have approved and might perhaps have suggested but it may seem doubtful whether the barbarian would have promoted his interest at the expense of the inhuman and absurd cruelty which was perpetrated by the direction or at least with the connivance of the imperial ministers the foreign auxiliaries who had been attached to the person of stilicho lamented his death but the desire of revenge was checked by a natural apprehension for the safety of their wives and children who were detained as hostages in the strong cities of italy where they had likewise deposited their most valuable effects. At the same hour, and as if by a common signal, the cities of Italy were polluted by the same horrid scenes of universal massacre and pillage, which involved in promiscuous destruction the families and fortunes of the barbarians. Exasperated by such an injury, which might have awakened the tamest and most servile spirit, they cast a look of indignation and hope toward the camp of Alaric, and unanimously swore to pursue with just and implacable war the perfidious nation that had so basely violated the laws of hospitality by the imprudent conduct of the ministers of honorius the republic lost the assistance and deserved the enmity of thirty thousand of her bravest soldiers and the weight of that formidable army which alone might have determined the event of the war was transferred from the scale of the romans into that of the goths in the arts of negotiation, as well as in those of war, the Gothic king maintained his superior ascendant over an enemy, whose seeming changes proceeded from the total want of counsel and design. From his camp, on the confines of Italy, Alaric attentively observed the revolutions of the palace, watched the progress of faction and discontent, disguised the hostile aspect of a barbarian invader, and assumed the more popular appearance of the friend and ally of the great stilicho to whose virtues when they were no longer formidable he could pay a just tribute of sincere praise and regret the pressing invitation of the malcontents who urged the king of the goths to invade italy was enforced by a lively sense of his personal injuries and he might speciously complain that the imperial ministers still delayed and eluded the payment of the four thousand pounds of gold which had been granted by the Roman Senate 
either to reward his services or to appease his fury. His decent firmness was supported by an artful moderation, which contributed to the success of his designs. He required a fair and reasonable satisfaction, but he gave the strongest assurances that as soon as he had obtained it, he would immediately retire. He refused to trust the faith of the Romans, unless Aetius and Jason, the sons of two great officers of state, were sent as hostages to his camp, but he offered to deliver in exchange several of the noblest youths of the Gothic nation. The modesty of Alaric was interpreted by the ministers of Ravenna as a sure evidence of his weakness and fear. They disdained either to negotiate a treaty or to assemble an army, and with a rash confidence, derived only from their ignorance of the extreme danger, irretrievably wasted the decisive moments of peace and war. While they expected, in sullen silence, that the barbarians should evacuate the confines of Italy, Alaric, with bold and rapid marches, passed the Alps and the Po, hastily pillaged the cities of Aquilia, Altinum, Concordia, and Cremona, which yielded to his arms, increased his forces by the accession of 30,000 auxiliaries, and, without meeting a single enemy in the field, advanced as far as the edges of the morass which protected the impregnable residence of the Emperor of the West. Instead of attempting the hopeless siege of Ravenna, the prudent leader of the Goths proceeded to Ramini, stretched his ravages along the seacoast of the Adriatic, and meditated the conquest of the ancient mistress of the world. An Italian hermit, whose zeal and sanctity were respected by the barbarians themselves, encountered the victorious monarch and boldly denounced the indignation of heaven against the oppressors of the earth. But the saint himself was confounded by the solemn asseveration of Alaric that he felt a secret and preternatural impulse, which directed and even compelled his march to the gates of Rome. He felt that his genius and his fortune were equal to the most arduous enterprises, and the enthusiasm which he communicated to the Goths insensibly removed the popular and almost superstitious reverence of the nations for the majesty of the Roman name. His troops, animated by the hopes of spoil, followed the course of the Flaminian Way, occupied the unguarded passes of the Apennine, descended into the rich plains of Umbria, and, as they lay encamped on the banks of the Clitumnus, might wantonly slaughter and devour the milk-white oxen, which had been so long reserved for the use of Roman triumphs. A lofty situation, and a seasonable tempest of thunder and lightning, preserved the little city of Narni, but the king of the Goths, despising the ignoble prey, still advanced with unabated vigor, and after he had passed through the stately arches, adorned with the spoils of barbaric victories, he pitched his camp under the walls of Rome. By a skillful disposition of his numerous forces, who impatiently watched the moment of an assault, Alaric encompassed the walls, commanded the twelve principal gates, intercepted all communication with the adjacent country, and vigilantly guarded the navigation of the Tiber, from which the Romans derived the surest and most plentiful supply of provisions. The first emotions of the nobles and of the people were those of surprise and indignation that a vile barbarian should dare to insult the capital of the world. But their arrogance was soon humbled by misfortune, and their unmanly rage, instead of being directed against an enemy in arms, was meanly exercised on a defenseless and innocent victim. Perhaps in the person of Serena, the Romans might have respected the niece of Theodosius, the aunt, nay, even the adoptive mother of the reigning emperor. 
but they abhorred the widow of Stilicho, and they listened with credulous passion to the tale of calumny, which accused her of maintaining a secret and criminal correspondence with the Gothic invader. Actuated or overawed by the same popular frenzy, the Senate, without requiring any evidence of her guilt, pronounced the sentence of her death. Serena was ignominiously strangled, and the infatuated multitude were astonished to find that this cruel act of injustice did not immediately produce the retreat of the barbarians and the deliverance of the city. That unfortunate city gradually experienced the distress of scarcity, and at length the horrid calamities of famine. The daily allowance of three pounds of bread was reduced to one-half, to one-third, to nothing, and the price of corn still continued to rise in a rapid and extravagant proportion. The poorer citizens, who were unable to purchase the necessaries of life, solicited the precarious charity of the rich, and for a while the public misery was alleviated by the humanity of Laeta, the widow of the Emperor Gratian, who had fixed her residence at Rome and consecrated to the use of the indigent the princely revenue which she annually received from the grateful successors of her husband. But these private and temporary donatives were insufficient to appease the hunger of a numerous people and the progress of famine invaded the marble palaces of the senators themselves. The persons of both sexes who had been educated in the enjoyment of ease and luxury discovered how little is requisite to supply the demands of nature, and lavished their unavailing treasures of gold and silver to obtain the coarse and scanty sustenance which they would formerly have rejected with disdain. The food the most repugnant to sense or imagination— the aliments the most unwholesome and pernicious to the constitution were eagerly devoured and fiercely disputed by the rage of hunger a dark suspicion was entertained that some desperate wretches fed on the bodies of their fellow creatures whom they had secretly murdered and even mothers such was the horrid conflict of the two most powerful instincts implanted by nature in the human breast even mothers are said to have tasted the flesh of their slaughtered infants Many thousands of the inhabitants of Rome expired in their houses or in the streets for want of sustenance, and as the public sepulchres without the walls were in the power of the enemy, the stench which arose from so many putrid and unburied carcasses infected the air, and the miseries of famine were succeeded and aggravated by the contagion of a pestilential disease. The assurances of speedy and effectual relief, which were repeatedly transmitted from the court of Ravenna, supported for some time the fainting resolution of the Romans, till at length the despair of any human aid tempted them to accept the offers of a preternatural deliverance. Pompeianus, prefect of the city, had been persuaded, by the art or fanaticism of some Tuscan diviners, that, by the mysterious force of spells and sacrifices, they could extract the lightning from the clouds, and point those celestial fires against the camp of the barbarians. The important secret was communicated to Innocent, the Bishop of Rome, and the successor of St. Peter is accused, perhaps with foundation, of preferring the safety of the Republic to the rigid severity of the Christian worship. But when the question was agitated in the Senate, when it was proposed, as an essential condition, that those sacrifices should be performed in the capital, by the authority and in the presence of the magistrates, the majority of that respectable assembly apprehensive either of the divine or of the imperial displeasure, refused to join in an act which appeared almost equivalent to the public restoration of paganism. The last resource of the Romans was in the clemency 
or at least in the moderation of the king of the goths the senate who in this emergency assumed the supreme powers of government appointed two ambassadors to negotiate with the enemy this important trust was delegated to basilius a senator of spanish extraction and already conspicuous in the administration of provinces and to john the first tribune of the notaries who was peculiarly qualified by his dexterity in business as well as by his former intimacy with the gothic prince when they were introduced into his presence they declared perhaps in a more lofty style than became their abject condition that the romans were resolved to maintain their dignity either in peace or war and that if alaric refused them a fair and honorable capitulation he might sound his trumpets and prepare to give battle to an innumerable people exercised in arms and animated by despair the thicker the hay the easier it is mowed was the concise reply of the barbarian and this rustic metaphor was accompanied by a loud and insulting laugh expressive of his contempt for the menaces of an unwarlike populace enervated by luxury before they were emaciated by famine he then condescended to fix the ransom which he would accept as the price of his retreat from the walls of rome all the gold and silver in the city whether it were the property of the state or of individuals all the rich and precious movables and all the slaves who could prove their title to the name of barbarians the ministers of the senate presumed to ask in a modest and suppliant tone if such o king are your demands what do you intend to leave us your lives replied the haughty conqueror they trembled and retired yet before they retired a short suspension of arms was granted which allowed some time for a more temperate negotiation the stern features of alaric were insensibly relaxed he abated much of the rigor of his terms and at length consented to raise the siege on the immediate payment of five thousand pounds of gold of thirty thousand pounds of silver of four thousand robes of silk of three thousand pieces of fine scarlet cloth and of three thousand pounds weight of pepper but the public treasury was exhausted the annual rents of the great estates in italy and the provinces were intercepted by the calamities of war the gold and gems had been exchanged during the famine for the vilest sustenance the hordes of secret wealth were still concealed by the obstinacy of avarice and some remains of consecrated spoils afforded the only resource that could avert the impending ruin of the city as soon as the romans had satisfied the rapacious demands of alaric they were restored in some measure to the enjoyment of peace and plenty several of the gates were cautiously opened the importation of provisions from the river and the adjacent country was no longer obstructed by the goths the citizens resorted in crowds to the free market which was held during three days in the suburbs and while the merchants who undertook this gainful trade made a considerable profit the future subsistence of the city was secured by the ample magazines which were deposited in the public and private granaries a more regular discipline than could have been expected was maintained in the camp of alaric and the wise barbarian justified his regard for the faith of treaties by the just severity with which he chastised a party of licentious goths who had insulted some roman citizens on the road to ostia his army enriched by the contributions of the capital slowly advanced into the fair and fruitful province of tuscany where he proposed to establish his winter quarters and the gothic standard became the refuge of forty thousand barbarian slaves who had broken their chains and aspired under the command of their great deliverer 
to revenge the injuries and the disgrace of their cruel servitude. About the same time he received a more honorable reinforcement of Goths and Huns, whom Adolphus, the brother of his wife, had conducted, at his pressing invitation, from the banks of the Danube to those of the Tiber, and who had cut their way, with some difficulty and loss, through the superior numbers of the imperial troops. A victorious leader, who united the daring spirit of a barbarian with the art and discipline of a Roman general, was at the head of a hundred thousand fighting men, and Italy pronounced, with terror and respect, the formidable name of Alaric. At the distance of fourteen centuries, we may be satisfied with relating the military exploits of the conquerors of Rome, without presuming to investigate the motives of their political conduct. In the midst of his apparent prosperity, Alaric was conscious, perhaps, of some secret weakness, some internal defect, or perhaps the moderation which he displayed was intended only to deceive and disarm the easy credulity of the ministers of Honorius. The king of the Goths repeatedly declared that it was his desire to be considered as the friend of peace and of the Romans. Three senators, at his earnest request, were sent ambassadors to the court of Ravenna to solicit the exchange of hostages and the conclusion of the treaty, and the proposals, which he more clearly expressed during the course of the negotiations, could only inspire a doubt of his sincerity as they might seem inadequate to the state of his fortune. The barbarian still aspired to the rank of master general of the armies of the West. He stipulated an annual subsidy of corn and money, and he chose the provinces of Dalmatia, Noricum, and Venetia for the seat of his new kingdom, which would have commanded the important communication between Italy and the Danube. If these modest terms should be rejected, Alaric showed a disposition to relinquish his pecuniary demands, and even to content himself with the possession of Noricum an exhausted and impoverished country perpetually exposed to the inroads of the barbarians of Germany. But the hopes of peace were disappointed by the weak obstinacy or interested views of the minister Olympius. Without listening to the salutary remonstrances of the Senate, he dismissed their ambassadors under the conduct of a military escort, too numerous for a retinue of honor and too feeble for an army of defense. Six thousand Dalmatians, the flower of the imperial legions, were ordered to march from Ravenna to Rome through an open country that was occupied by the formidable myriads of the barbarians. These brave legionaries, encompassed and betrayed, fell a sacrifice to ministerial folly. Their general, Valens, with a hundred soldiers, escaped from the field of battle, and one of the ambassadors, who could no longer claim the protection of the law of nations, was obliged to purchase his freedom with a ransom of 30,000 pieces of gold. Yet Alaric, instead of resenting this act of impotent hostility, immediately renewed his proposals of peace, and the second embassy of the Roman Senate, which derived weight and dignity from the presence of Innocent, bishop of the city, was guarded from the dangers of the road by a detachment of Gothic soldiers. Olympius might have continued to insult the just resentment of a people who loudly accused him as the author of the public calamities, but his power was undermined by the secret intrigues of the palace. The favorite eunuchs transferred the government of Honorius and the empire to Jovius, the praetorian prefect, an unworthy servant who did not atone by the merit of personal attachment for the errors and misfortunes of his administration. The exile, or escape, of the guilty Olympius reserved him for more vicissitudes of fortune. 
he experienced the adventure of an obscure and wandering life he again rose to power he fell a second time into disgrace his ears were cut off he expired under the lash and his ignominious death afforded a grateful spectacle to the friends of stilicho after the removal of olympias whose character was deeply tainted with religious fanaticism the pagans and heretics were delivered from the impolitic proscription which excluded them from the dignities of the state the brave Genered, a soldier of barbarian origin who still adhered to the worship of his ancestors had been obliged to lay aside the military belt and though he was repeatedly assured by the emperor himself that laws were not made for persons of his rank or merit he refused to accept any partial dispensation and persevered in honorable disgrace till he had extorted a general act of justice from the distress of the roman government the conduct of Genered, in the important station to which he was promoted or restored of master-general of Domitia, pannonia noricum and raetia seemed to revive the discipline and spirit of the republic from a life of idleness and want his troops were soon habituated to severe exercise and plentiful subsistence and his private generosity often supplied the rewards which were denied by the avarice or poverty of the court of ravenna the valor of Genered, formidable to the adjacent barbarians was the firmest bulwark of the illyrian frontier and his vigilant care assisted the empire with a reinforcement of ten thousand huns who arrived on the confines of italy attended by such a convoy of provisions and such a numerous train of sheep and oxen as might have been sufficient not only for the march of an army but for the settlement of a colony but the court and councils of honorius still remained a scene of weakness and distraction of corruption and anarchy instigated by the prefect jovius the guards rose in furious mutiny and demanded the heads of two generals and of the two principal eunuchs the generals under a perfidious promise of safety were sent on shipboard and privately executed while the favor of the eunuchs procured them a mild and secure exile at milan and constantinople eusebius the eunuch and the barbarian alibich succeeded to the command of the bedchamber and of the guards and the mutual jealousy of these subordinate ministers was the cause of their mutual destruction by the insolent order of the count of the domestics the great chamberlain was shamefully beaten to death with sticks before the eyes of the astonished emperor and the subsequent assassination of alibich in the midst of a public procession is the only circumstance of his life in which honorius discovered the faintest symptom of courage or resentment yet before they fell eusebius and alibich had contributed their part to the ruin of the empire by opposing the conclusion of a treaty which jovius from a selfish and perhaps a criminal motive had negotiated with alaric in a personal interview under the walls of rimini during the absence of jovius the emperor was persuaded to assume a lofty tone of inflexible dignity such as neither his situation nor his character could enable him to support and a letter signed with the name of honorius was immediately dispatched to the praetorian prefect granting him a free permission to dispose of the public money but sternly refusing to prostitute the military honors of rome to the proud demands of a barbarian this letter was imprudently communicated to alaric himself and the goth who in the whole transaction had behaved with temper and decency expressed in the most outrageous language his lively sense of the insult so wantonly offered to his person and to his nation the conference of rimini was hastily interrupted and the prefect jovius on his return to ravenna 
was compelled to adopt and even to encourage the fashionable opinions of the court. By his advice and example, the principal officers of the state and army were obliged to swear that without listening in any circumstances to any conditions of peace, they would still persevere in perpetual and implacable war against the enemy of the Republic. This rash engagement opposed an insuperable bar to all future negotiation. The ministers of Honorius were heard to declare that if they had only invoked the name of the deity, they would consult the public safety and trust their souls to the mercy of heaven. But they had sworn by the sacred head of the emperor himself. They had touched, in solemn ceremony, that august seat of majesty and wisdom, and the violation of their oath would expose them to the temporal penalties of sacrilege and rebellion. While the emperor and his court enjoyed, with sullen pride, the security of the marshes and fortifications of Ravenna, they abandoned Rome, almost without defense, to the resentment of Alaric. Yet such was the moderation which he still preserved, or affected, that, as he moved with his army along the Flaminian Way, he successively dispatched the bishops of the towns of Italy to reiterate his offers of peace and to conjure the emperor that he would save the city and its inhabitants from hostile fire and the sword of the barbarians. These impending calamities were, however, averted, not indeed by the wisdom of Honorius, but by the prudence or humanity of the Gothic king, who employed a milder, though not less effectual, method of conquest. Instead of assaulting the capital, he successfully directed his efforts against the port of Ostia, one of the boldest and most stupendous works of Roman magnificence. The accidents to which the precarious subsistence of the city was continually exposed in a winter navigation and an open road had suggested to the genius of the first Caesar the useful design which was executed under the reign of Claudius. The artificial moles, which formed the narrow entrance, advanced far into the sea and firmly repelled the fury of the waves, while the largest vessels securely rode at anchor within three deep and capacious basins, which received the northern branch of the Tiber, about two miles from the ancient colony of Ostia. The Roman port insensibly swelled to the size of an Episcopal city, where the corn of Africa was deposited in spacious granaries for the use of the capital. As soon as Alaric was in possession of that important place, he summoned the city to surrender at discretion, and his demands were enforced by the positive declaration that a refusal or even a delay should be instantly followed by the destruction of the magazines on which the life of the Roman people depended. The clamors of that people and the terror of famine subdued the pride of the Senate. They listened, without reluctance, to the proposal of placing a new emperor on the throne of the unworthy Honorius, and the suffrage of the Gothic conqueror bestowed the purple on Attalus, prefect of the city. The grateful monarch immediately acknowledged his protector as master-general of the armies of the West. Adolphus, within the rank of Count of the Domestics, obtained the custody of the person of Attalus, and the two hostile nations seemed to be united in the closest bands of friendship and alliance. The gates of the city were thrown open, and the new emperor of the Romans, encompassed on every side by the Gothic arms, was conducted in tumultuous procession to the palace of Augustus and Trajan. After he had distributed the civil and military dignities among his favorites and followers, Attalus convened an assembly of the Senate, before whom, in a formal and florid speech, he asserted his resolution of restoring the majesty of the Republic 
and of uniting to the empire the provinces of egypt and the east which had once acknowledged the sovereignty of rome such extravagant promises inspired every reasonable citizen with a just contempt for the character of an unwarlike usurper whose elevation was the deepest and most ignominious wound which the republic had yet sustained from the insolence of the barbarians but the populace with their usual levity applauded the change of masters the public discontent was favorable to the rival of honorius and the sectaries oppressed by his persecuting edicts expected some degree of countenance or at least of toleration from a prince who in his native country of ionia had been educated in the pagan superstition and who had since received the sacrament of baptism from the hands of an arian bishop End of section 1. Recording by Colleen McMahon.